Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice, calm... This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City Podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Establishing a Sustainable Meditation Practice. This episode features suggestions and a discussion around making meditation practice more sustainable so that we can enjoy it as a feature of our daily lives. Today we are joined by Susan Piver. Susan is an authorized meditation instructor in the Shambhala Buddhist lineage and the New York Times bestselling author of six books, including the award-winning How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life and The Wisdom of a Broken Heart. She has practiced meditation for over 15 years and teaches around the world. Here's Susan to take away the discussion. I just maybe we'll start by saying I don't have any secret tricks. I'm so sorry to say. Um, but just to acknowledge at the outset that without even knowing you, I feel quite certain that you are doing the best you can. And everybody has difficulty sustaining their practice. And the very best practice that you can do immediately is the practice of letting yourself off the hook. So please begin practicing that immediately. Um, but let me just ask you, why, why do you practice meditation? Or why do you want to practice meditation? To stay sane. That's, it's excellent for those purposes. Mm-hmm. That's great. So it's a way to take a break from the incessant blah, 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 blah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. That's awesome. He feels happier all the time when he's in a good meditation practice. That's a great reason. Mm-hmm. A great way to connect with yourself. And give yourself some love. 100%. Beautiful. Last one. To have a glimpse of being totally present. Fantastic. These are all excellent reasons. I'm sure everybody can relate. And I would like to uh, posit, however, that While these are all excellent reasons, they may not be the reason to practice. Because the reason to practice I've discovered is actually to discover something. Rather than to change yourself in any way, particularly, it is to discover something that you don't know right now about who you are. And the path of discovery can only take root when we relax. But when we sit down to practice with the idea that this is what it is, and this is what I want it to do, and I want it to do all sorts of things, including everything everybody just said, and this is um, what I need from my practice, the magic of the practice kind of dissipates Because really, it is a way to meet yourself. And if you think you already know what that is, then, you know, 
you're tapping yourself on the shoulder and you think you're talking to yourself, but you're really talking to some kind of a wall. I have that uh, feeling often, by the way. So um, if I ask you right now without moving or doing anything, I'm sure everybody can do this. I'm going to ask us all to do this together to uh, please put your attention right now on your uh, left index finger. You don't have to look at it. Just put your attention on it. And now put your attention on your right ear. And now put it on the person in front of you or the floor if you're sitting in the front row. And now put it on my voice. And now put it above my head. And now put it back on your left index finger. So everybody could do that, right? Did anybody? So something moves between those points, right? That something is your attention. And that something is the alpha and omega of the practice. That is what we are working with. So we may come to the practice thinking, I want to be more patient, speaking for myself. You know, I want to um, feel more loving. And all of that is great. And all of that will happen because this is one hell of a magic practice. But really, it's about working with that. So when we start to get too far from that, it gets very confusing. That is the secret sauce. And he or she who can place that where he or she would like it to go and hold it there is a master or mistress of his or her domain in every way. So in our world, it's extremely difficult to do that. And we are so accustomed to that bouncing all the time for a good reason. You, especially people who live in New York City, you just walk down the street and that is going boing, 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 a million times, not even counting all the things that are going on in your mind. And then to think, well, I need to actually place that somewhere purposefully because I want to do something, cook or answer email or think about my life, it becomes very hard to do. So we're practicing being able to work with that. So that's something to contemplate. And so I have some suggestions for how you can make your practice sustainable because anybody can start their practice and few can maintain their practice. And we all go through, I just, I want to be extremely clear that everybody gets on the horse and falls off the horse and so on. So just please don't forget that. So I have some suggestions for uh, making your practice strong. And I'll share them with you. And then if you have questions or comments about anything I said or about your practice in general, please do not hesitate. Okay? The first thing that uh, is helpful in creating a sustainable practice is to set aside some very popular misconceptions that create enormous obstacles. And there are three. And the first misconception, the biggest misconception, the uber misconception that in order to meditate, you have to stop thinking. No. <laughs> it makes me so upset when I hear that. And I mean, when I've 
heard so many times from people that say, there's no way I can meditate because I can't stop thinking. I can't clear my mind of thought. And of course you can't. And to meditate, you don't have to turn that off. So, you know, that is going a billion miles an hour all day long and often all night long. And then to think you're going to sit on your meditation cushion or chair and pull the emergency brake and just go and have, it would, it's not going to work that way. And if it did, it would be extremely disconcerting. So your meditation practice invites your thoughts, includes your thoughts, has a way of working with your thoughts, and no thought needs to be excluded. Your mind can race, you can be an asshole, you can be a brilliant genius, you can be a beacon of love and light in your thoughts. All of that is fabulous. Included. Can be a part of the practice. Um, so our mind exists to make thoughts, and to suddenly say, stop, would be like saying to your eyeballs, which are open right now, and you're looking out through them, say to them, don't see anything. It would, you're, if that was your practice, it would just be like, what? This is so frustrating. So the only thing you have to stop thinking is that you're supposed to stop thinking. All the other thoughts are welcome. So meditation is a way of relating with your thoughts and relaxing with your mind, which is vast, beyond belief, and uh, sharpens more from the gesture of relaxation and ease and space than it does from the gesture of, shut up, or you have to act this way, or you can only think nice thoughts, or you've thought that a million times, please don't ever think it again. It, that does not help. But creating a space of relaxation for all of those nutty children to play in um, is more beneficial for you. And it's also quite empowering. You take the seat of power when you look at your own thoughts that way. Does that make sense? Okay. The second misconception, I would say, becoming more and more popular, and it's not a bad thing, but it is not quite right, is that meditation is a form of self-help. And that it's a technology for becoming healthier or a better leader or a better partner or whatever it might be. And yes, it will help you do all those things. But that is one one bazillionth of what it really is. So also, without knowing most of you, my guess is that you're, when it comes to working on self-improvement, you're good. You got that. In the sense that you're always trying to get better at being who you are, doing what you do, the way you relate to others, the way you look, the way you feel. There's this constant, you could do that better, you could do that better, you could do that better. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's like, yeah, you need to kick your own butt. Most of the time, however, tips over into something unhelpful that is a kind of harsh self-doubt. And to dispel that doubt, most of us, and by, by most of us I mean myself, uh, crank up the self-improvement at that point. Like, uh-oh, uh-oh, this is worse than I thought. I better do 
read every book and 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 watch myself like a hawk get a very tight rein on myself and we should all work to be extraordinary in whatever way we want and we should all work on our our bad habits and and develop discipline and and you know high standards that we stick to and all of that but if we put our meditation practice in that bucket that self improvement bucket it doesn't know what to do in there so a better way to look at your practice is as a way to take a break from self improvement and instead just to relax so it's like jumping off the self improvement treadmill for 5 minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes or however long you practice you just go i'm okay with you you can be nutty you can be brilliant you can be boring you can be all those things and i'm just going to hang out with you and that's what friendship is so meditation is sometimes called the act of the gesture of friendship that you make towards yourself and just like with your friends if you sat down with your friends and went that is not a good color for you and you've already told me that story 10 times and that relationship is never going to work because you always screw it up at a certain point you know that would not be a fun friendship to be in on either end but that's what we do to ourselves so your meditation practice is a chance to not do that and it's quite delightful to just be with yourself so that's the second misconception and the third misconception is that um the reason to meditate is to become more peaceful and it will make you more peaceful and we all want to be and can be more peaceful but if you've practiced for x amount of time you know a month 6 months 6 years at some point you see why is everything piercing my heart why is it that i cannot see someone suffering without feeling devastated myself why is it that the things that i used to be able to hold at arm's length are now touching me why do i feel more from my meditation practice because i wanted to feel less of some things and the truth about your practice is that it does something better than make you more peaceful it makes you more genuine because in this practice of relaxing with yourself it's not just like you're babysitting yourself and and just trying to make sure you don't get in trouble it's like you're actually being with yourself in a softer way you soften toward yourself by allowing your experience in your practice to be what it is and i cannot overstate to you the repercussions of that softening that softening has tremendous consequence because without trying whether you want this to happen or not when you soften toward yourself you soften toward others when you soften toward yourself and you soften toward others your heart 
just continues to open. And when it's open, anything can come in and does. That's not necessarily what I would call peaceful. But it kind of is. Because usually when we say, oh, I want to be more peaceful, it means I don't want to feel upsetting things. And I want to feel good things. Not too good, just good. And if, if something horrible happens to me, I don't really want to get that upset about it. I'd like to get upset for a couple minutes and then just recover. But I don't think that's what peaceful is. But because we are human beings living in a vast and crazy, chaotic, and brilliant, and unspeakably profound situation, that is not an option. There is way too much to feel just from being a person. Even if everything is good in your life, there's way too much to feel. This is way too big to mandate that way of being in the world, of just all Zen, whatever people mean when they say that. Instead, a better route to peace is to ride the waves of extreme distress and great happiness and total boredom and and make space for all of that. So usually when we say we want to be peaceful, it means we want to corral ourselves and leave certain things outside of that corral and create the safe space, sometimes in the Shambhala tradition called a cocoon. But this way of creating peace is the opposite. It's a constant embiggening, and I, I know that's not a word, of the space in which you hold your experience. So that is good. But it's not safe or easy. So that's one set of suggestions. Set aside the misconceptions when you look at your practice. And um, the most important, I would say, thing to do with your practice is to stop trying to do it right. Because the power of the practice arises from your personal connection to it. And when we start to practice, yes, there is a technique. It is very specific. Every detail is there for a reason. We shouldn't, you know, monkey around with the technique. We should, you know, employ the technique wholeheartedly. But at the same time, the practice, the technique is just there to support you and hold your experience so that you can then have a stable seat from which you can gaze out into your world or into your own heart. Excuse me. And then we each, our inner meditation instructor starts to arise. And your practice is unlike anyone else's. And the way to begin discovering your practice, meaning your connection to the practice, because the practice is what it is, but within that, there's uh, room for infinite variety, is um, to follow the technique. And as long as you follow it, have confidence that there is no way that you can do it wrong. And have equal confidence that there is no way that you can do it right. And that is quite charming. 
to be asked to do something that cannot be done incorrectly or correctly. Very, it's un-American, but... <laughs> the poet Rumi said, uh, I may be paraphrasing, out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. And this practice happens in that field. And that field is accessed through whatever hemisphere of your brain is the nonlinear one. Right brain. Thank you. So when we approach our practice with our left brain, okay, this is, this is how, what's going to happen. This is how I have to do it. This is what the person said. This is, you know, all of that's good. But when you sit down to practice, all of that can be set aside. And this other part of your brain, which is the sensing, feeling, intuiting, Part. That's the part that really connects you to the magic of the practice. So, if you had, if you do any an art of any kind, you already know how to do this. So, I'm going to try not to make this too long-winded. Um, your meditation practice is more than all the things I just said: self-help and so on. How do you keep it sort of special and sacred? And Because we're all rushing around our lives so fast, and you're like, oh, I better sit down on that cushion, and then you do, and you just feel antsy, and you're like, eh, is this over yet? And oh, this isn't doing anything. Okay, maybe I won't do it anymore. Oh, I need to do it. I should do it. I said I'd do it. I better do it. <laughs> uh, what, what else? What else you got? <laughs> what other possibilities are there besides that approach to your practice, which... I also am quite familiar with. So once I was at, at Shambhala Mountain Center, which is a land center in this lineage in Colorado that's really, really beautiful. Has anybody ever been there? It's really awesome. If you ever have a chance to go there, please go there. There's something there called a stupa, which is uh, a building that's built to honor the memory of a great teacher. And the stupa there is built to honor the memory of Chagim Trungpa Rinpoche. And there are three floors. The first floor is public. The second floor is for people doing a particular practice. And you can only go to that floor if you're doing that practice. And the third floor is even smaller, and it's for another practice. And you can only go there if you're doing that practice. And so there was a, a cello player, a, great, a world-renowned cello player, came to Shambhala Mountain Center and fell in love with it. And he was the winner of the Pablo Casals competition in Europe. And he was at Shambhala Mountain Center with Pablo Casals cello. And he's like, I'd like to take this cello and make a recording. And I think, that, you know, from what I understand, I've not been on the third floor of the stupa, but that's the best acoustics. I'd like to make a recording there and then just give it to you to sell to benefit Shambhala Mountain Center. And Shambhala Mountain Center was like, we will take you up on that. And I used to work in the music business, and I had some experience doing this, so I got in charge of making the recording, and I found a 24-track mobile unit to drive up the mountain and and... We got permission from Shambhala Mountain Center to go to the third floor, even though none of us were doing that practice. And my meditation teacher happened to be on the land at that time, and I was concerned, like, how can we do that? It's like just tromping into someone's yard and, you know, walking all over their garden. I mean, how can we go into that space without, <clears throat> you know, sort of spiritual authorization? What, you know... What's the karma in that? How can we make that okay to do? And at this time, we happened to be walking around the stupa, and he said, oh, that's easy. 
you just uh, make offerings, request blessings, and dedicate the merit. That's all he said. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I'm telling you that. To keep your practice sacred, spiritual, not, you know, precious, but really deep, these are the three steps. And I'll tell you just very briefly what, what is meant by these three steps. Make offerings and request blessings you do before your practice. Then you do the practice. Then you dedicate the merit. So uh, make offerings, like all of these things on this shrine, these are offerings. These bowls represent different things and the lights and the beautiful book that's wrapped in that brocade. And some shrines have flowers. Often shrines have incense. Things that evoke the sense perceptions are often used as offerings. And, you know, if you have a place where you meditate, you can have, you know, you don't have to make it like this, but you can have offerings, or, you know, at your wherever it is you meditate. And they can be flowers or a picture of something that, or someone that inspires you. Um, you can light incense. You can, you know, create a little shrine. Not because it's something you saw in a picture, but because it's a way for you to place offering substances and offer those offerings, as it were. However, the best offering is always what you are experiencing right now. Who are you right now? How do you feel? What is your experience? That's the best offering. So before your practice, if you connect with that, I feel tired, I feel grumpy, I feel fabulous, I feel confused, I feel all of those things, and just rouse this sense of, I give all of that to my practice. That's a very good offering. The second step is to request blessings. So it's like, well, what are you making an offering to? So if you have a traditional practice, like me, I'm very traditional, then I request the blessings of my teachers. And the, the teachers of this lineage, I like they're in this case, their chants that are the request for the blessings. And you ask them, please, Padmasambhava, you know, Tilo, Naro, Marpa, Mila, please, everybody, I'm, I hold your lineage. Please bless me as I practice in whatever way, whatever that means to me or them. Um, but you don't have to have that to request blessings because we are all part of a lineage or lineages because nobody just poof, got here in a cloud of smoke. So you could be in the lineage of Christians or Jews or Muslims or Hindus. You could be in the lineage of shamans or, you know, goddess lovers or whatever it is that your lineage is. That's great. But you could also be in the lineage of um, teachers or mothers or friends or activists, or gardeners, or lovers, or poets. Whatever you aspire to, whatever you long for, whatever you connect to most deeply, that's your lineage. It could be the lineage of Italians or the lineage of Armenians. And so when you sit down to practice, you could rouse a sense of your lineage. So for me, like I say, it's my teachers, but I also think of Bob Dylan. 
and the poet Rilke. And my grandparents and great-grandparents, who I never met, and I sort of imagine in, my, you know, in some way that my Buddhist teachers are sitting on my left and my grandparents from the Ukraine are sitting on my right. And I ask them to bless me in some way that feels right to me. There's no way that I can tell you how to do that. But just, I, I, I came from you. I am continuing your work or your way. I'm the next in line. And please support me. And so you can request the blessings of your lineage or lineages in just some simple way. Or you can make it complicated. And then you do your practice. And at the end of your practice, you do what's called dedicate the merit, which simply means if you're in a traditional practice, there's words you say. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, and so forth and so on. And you can say your own words, though, or you don't even have to say words. You just get the sense of whatever just happened in my practice, good, bad, or ugly, whatever I felt, whatever I saw, whatever obstacles I ran into, however bored I was or intrigued, I bundle all that up and I offer it so that it could somehow benefit others. That's what is the dedicate the merit part. You dedicate the merit of your practice. And it doesn't just mean when you practice well. It means anything that happens is the merit because that's what happened while you were practicing and you let go of it. You just, whoop, I hope what, I don't know how my grumpy practice could benefit others, but I offer it so that it may. Does that make sense? And as I hope you can see, there's nothing religious about that. It's very intimate which is very important for your practice to be intimate. So there's some other things I was going to say, but I'm just going to say one more thing, and then we can have a conversation. Um, there are traditional obstacles. You know, in classical Buddhist thought, there are three main obstacles to practice. The first one is called laziness, which there are three kinds. The second one is called forgetting the instructions. Just remind yourself. And the third one is called laxity slash elation, which means being too bored or too excited in your practice, and both of which are considered obstacles. But I'm just going to focus on one of the three kinds of laziness. The three kinds are regular. Let's see, what, what am I binge-watching these days? I can't even remember. That's how spaced out I am sometimes. Uh, binge-watching something or just going, oh, I don't feel like it, you know, regular laziness, which we're all quite acquainted with. The second kind of laziness is called becoming disheartened, which is interesting that that's considered a form of laziness. It's like, oh, this will never work, or I'm really not very good at this, or other people are becoming Dalai Lamas and I'm still a loser, and <laughs> that kind of thing. That's considered lazy because you've forgotten how awesome you are. And you've letened, you've letened, you've allowed your blah, 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 to become the loudest voice. But the third kind of laziness is the one that I want to um, highlight. And that form of laziness is called being too busy. And in Buddhist thought, being too busy is thought to, of, as a kind of laziness. And, you know, that's kind of counterintuitive to us because we think the people who are the most industrious and important are the busiest. And if you don't have time 
to do anything, it's because you're important and you just don't have time because too many demands on you and too many people, whatever, too many responsibilities, whatever it might be. But in Buddhist thought, that is considered a form of laziness because you've let your priorities get upside down. And rather than placing at the top of the priority list your inner life, the discovery of the meaning of your life, the strengthening and investment in your own particular brand of brilliance, those things fall to the bottom of the list. And I have to answer my email that's the top of the list and yeah you do have to everybody has to and so on but when you constantly let this one go and just forget about it then that's thought to be a kind of laziness so it's just an interesting way of looking at it Um, because the real priority is who you are and feeling that and then the very last thing I'm going to say is uh I've been on long meditation retreats that that start every morning with the precepts. You make these vows. You know, the normal vows that people ask you to make if you're starting out on a spiritual path, like, I'm not going to drink, you know, I'm not going to get drunk, I'm not going to be inappropriately sexual, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to kill anyone, the basics. And every morning you say that, and you're kind of like, okay. But the thing that I loved about the precepts in Buddhist practice is that they're only for that day. That's why you say them every day. Because the next day you say them again. And if you, and the, uh, someone said, but we're having a party tonight, and what if I want to have a glass of sake? Our teacher said, well, just give that vow back. <laughs> Which I thought was awesome. <laughs> and extremely creative, actually, and very kind. So it didn't say you have to be perfect. It was like, take these vows. If you're, if you're going to screw one up, like, no, but l- consciously and intentionally return it. Say, I'm, that, I, I'm giving that vow back for now. And so in your meditation practice, you can make some kind of a vow. I am going to practice for 10 minutes a day, five days a week, for one month, whatever that is. And then if the third day comes up and you don't practice, Give the vow back for that day. And that's it. You're done. You've completed your practice. And then the next day, resume. And if that day you're like, oh, I'm not going to do it, give it back again. But make it very crisp and very clear and very intentional. And there are no penalties or bonuses in either case. But it's you working with yourself that is the real practice. So that's what I wanted to say. If you have any questions. Yes. Thank you. Um, I think like the biggest impediment that I face, and, and I find a lot of people who are like me, you know, think similarly is, you know, I grew up in a very dangerous environment. So that kind of left me disinclined to ever really relax. So what happens is when I undertake a meditation practice, um, there's this basic feeling that I'm kind of broken, you know what I'm saying? And that no matter what I do, it's not really going to be permanent. Because when you grow up, and I'm not really trying to draw attention to myself here, but when you grow up in in a really um, dangerous environment, your brain kind of wraps around the idea that you're always 
under duress. So what I think that I took the wrong approach to meditation all these years, I was just more looking for to be anesthetized as opposed to be comfortable with myself. And I find that the biggest impediment I have for getting on the cushion is um, I have this prevailing thought that I need to be, to feel okay right now, right? And I think a lot of people take that same attitude toward meditation, and I think that dissuades a lot of people because obviously it's not going to happen right away. Thank you so much for saying those things. And can I ask you what your practice is? When, generally, and this is being really honest, when things are going well in my life, because, you know, kind of despite how I grew up, I, I did make myself halfway decent. Um, things are going well in my life. I show up. Uh, I practice. And what I, do you practice? I, I have a, uh, I have, because it's very hard for me to sit still. So, I mean, I have, I have what I like to call physical meditation, which is because I'm a pro boxer. So... When, after I box, it's very easy for me to relax. So generally, after my daily boxing practices, I'll sit and do seated meditation. Now, this only happens when my world is not completely in a whirlwind and I can wrap my brain around the idea of doing it. Now, if there's anything, and it can be something minor, if there's anything that's making me feel like I'm under duress, I don't, I don't have a practice. Mm -hmm. And it's antithetical because you really should be practicing more when things are not going well. Mm -hmm. So when things are going well, it's real easy for me to practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that that inconsistency led toward, you know, I've never really gotten a, a great benefit out of it. But I keep, I keep coming. I keep trying. And I really, like, appreciate the way you put things. You made it very easy to, to discern my feelings tonight. So yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate you're that. You're welcome. And I thank you for that. And I have a couple suggestions. Um, and I'm sure... People can and can't relate to what you said because not everyone grew up in that way, more or less. But everyone can relate to when I'm under duress, I, my practice gets further away from me, I think, because it's too scary to say I'm going to sit with this agitation for good reason. And, and nobody should force themselves to do it. Because when you sit and you start to soften, you start to relax, and what you're holding at arm's length immediately comes up, which for most people is they're just tired and they fall asleep. Okay. Um, so when it comes to things like panic and trauma, and th that, that's a different category. And that is something that needs a special kind of approach. And do you have a meditation instructor? Yes. You do have one? Yes. Oh, good, good, good. Oh, that's great. So is that helpful? Um, yes, because when I put the effort in, you know, a lot of the times when, when I'm walking around, I'm, I'm kind of walking around in a, in a fight or flight all the time. Mm -hmm. There's, the only thing I'm going to focus on is what I think is going to make me feel better at that moment, which gets me in a lot of trouble <laughs> sometimes. Well, then I, here's the practice that I want to give to you for those times. And it's not the practice of sitting meditation. It's the practice of not practicing. So just say to yourself, for the next three days or five days or whatever it is, three months, my practice is not to practice. I'm and good at you, that. Okay, good. But make it conscious. And if you say, I'm going to not practice for seven days and you feel like practicing on the sixth day, don't cheat. Just keep it really crisp. 
And then after the seven days, see how you feel. And the most important practice of all is being gentle to yourself, not being mean to yourself. And um, the last thing I want to say is if you start to feel something like that arise while you're practicing, like you sit down and you're like, I think this is good, but then it happens, as best you can, notice that, call it thinking, let go, and come back to your breath. And if that is not possible, and this is, applies to anyone who's working with difficult emotions in their practice, make that the folk, make that the object of your meditation, the agitation. So in other words, place your attention on it, lean into it, not the story of it, but the feeling of it. It makes my heart race. It makes me feel shaky. It makes my feel. It makes my head feel like pressure, whatever it might be. And when your attention starts to stray from that, and you have to use your own judgment on this, bring it back. And then when you're able to, go back to your breath. But you experiment with that, even just for like three cycles of breath, like bringing it into your practice. And then if you just feel like jumping up and stopping, take another three breaths of regular practice, and then get up and rely on your meditation instructor. Um, one thing I will say, just kind of in support of the idea of meditation when it applies to people who have incurred trauma, is that when I do have a daily practice, it really sets a much better baseline. And that's like a literal baseline in my brain where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm much more relaxed. Not so much in, you know, like my body because I'm too big to be relaxed. But, you know, like when you're, the way you, the way you interpret things, mm -hmm. right? Because you, you could feel a certain way about something on a Monday and then by Friday just feel completely different about it. And it's completely the same. So... When I, have, when I have sustained a meditation practice, it has been extremely beneficial. It's just the trick of sustaining it. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi. Hi. Uh, one of my biggest difficulties with meditating is uh, people often say, observe your thoughts. And to use a metaphor, if I'm, basically I feel like when I sit down on a cushion, it's like if I were to, to look at a superhighway, I can't really observe anything looking at a superhighway because <clears throat> it's just a blur. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I can see one thought at a time. I just see a blur of like 10 thoughts every millisecond. So any thoughts on that? Uh-huh. Um, the, the best thing to observe is your breath. And if there's a sense of you're sitting by a highway where there's you know a million things going by a million times an hour, you're not in any of those vehicles. You're sitting here and you're going with your breath. And you may have this sense that... So observe your thoughts is, I would say, not necessarily the pith of the practice. It's observe your breath, feel your breath. And if your mind becomes distracted by thought, observe that. Let go gently and then return your attention to your breath. But the breath is home base. And so observe where your mind is rather than your thoughts. Say. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of thinking about getting to that time where you're actually sitting in your 10 minutes or five minutes, and you talked about laziness 
as opting out or that sort of real firmness for, with yourself on the other end of the spectrum. So mm -hmm. like, I'm not going to do it, forget it, or you must do this. Um, what does that middle look like where you might in some different way find yourself to your practice? It's a good question. Do you have, I'm not trying to turn it back on you, but do you have a sense of what the middle way would look like for you? The only word that comes to mind is some sort of relaxed thinking. I'll which go with that. It's hard to define. So you, you have a general sense of commitment. And the, my suggestion is make a commitment that is really doable, like super doable. Like I'm going to meditate for five minutes a day on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for a month. And then at the end of that, I'm going to reassess or 10 minutes or whatever it is that you think you can do. And then when that doesn't work out, you know, you really try to honor that. But then, then something will happen and you don't. Then your practice becomes gentleness toward yourself. And that, that's a very advanced practice. And it's a very hard practice. And then go back. So you see, oh, I feel embarrassed. I feel mad at myself. I feel like I hate meditation. Whatever it is that you notice that you feel, just, oh, interesting, interesting. Those are thoughts you can observe. And then let yourself off the hook and come back again. It's always going to go like this. Oh, it's never not going to go like, it's never going to not go like this. So make friends with that. And be kind and loyal to yourself. I'm sure you're doing your best. Really. Okay, I think we have time for one more right behind you. I have a, an interesting thought that goes into my mind. Can you Every hold the time mic I a little down, closer? Thank you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Every time I sit down, I start by focusing on my breath. And then my thoughts come in. I'm aware of my thoughts. And at one point, they take me away. And just automatically, it's like a cycle. I go back to being aware on my breath. And it, it goes back. Every time. I don't know if I'm practicing or it's just a natural state of mind. So, that's so you are focusing on your breath and then at some point your mind gets absorbed in thought and then on its own it comes back to your breath? Yeah, on its own. Like, Where like are you in all of this? And then Where are you in all of this? Are you... So at some point I'm, I'm aware and then when it... At some point I'm aware and then when it takes me, I'm not anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, I just come back. I don't know how. That's awesome. Yes, yes, you're practicing. <laughs> it is my professional opinion that you are but practicing meditation. Without any effort, though. Without any... Mm -hmm. It's just yes. natural. Yes. Back. Because what happens, if I may be so bold, is you're focusing on your breath, you're focusing on your breath, and then you're like, hi, maybe I have cancer, or I wonder what's for lunch, or <laughs> wherever it, it goes, or... God, the homeland is so great this year. I often think about how long my hair is getting... <laughs> I don't have the same thoughts, but it's, uh... <laughs> so at some point in this fascinating interchange with myself, something cuts in and goes boop, and then you come back. So that something hap you, you you don't make that happen. Something cuts into your mind stream and says hello, 
you're meditating actually, so please go back to your breath and then you do. And that cutting through is really interesting. Like where does that come from? And if you can do it, why can't you do it all the time? So that is a contemplation that I uh, invite you to have with yourself. Where is that cutting through coming from? And it's quite, it always happens. And it's very natural and easeful. And it's like suddenly a light goes on. So that's good. That's a, that's good practice. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you all so very, very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.